from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. She was prettier than I had seen her in years. She was happier. There was a glow about her. And that's sad that your outside world was so terrifying that going to prison made you, made, brought you happiness. When you're in that situation, you don't see it as violent. It's just Tuesday. It's just Wednesday. There, how can anybody function, in an, especially in a dysfunctional, so dysfunctional home, on all this medication? They were doctor shopping. It, I, if my mom was alive, she said it would have killed a horse as many drugs as she was on. That's her life is going to be prison. I'm Sarah Fenske. When Betty Frizzell's sister was charged with murder, it upended Betty's life. But in some ways, it was also part of a familiar, troubling pattern for the former Missouri police chief. Betty Frizzell grew up just outside Poplar Bluff. And as she writes in the first chapter of her recent memoir, quote, Vicki isn't the first person in my family to be charged with murder. Murder is generational in my family. The Frizzells were known for two things, musical talent and quick tempers. Mom would describe her kin as the kind of people who would rather shoot you than look at you. Betty Frizzell's memoir is about her family's intimacy with violence, but it's also about the opioid crisis that devastated small-town America, about mental illness, and about the ways life in rural Missouri has become impossible for many of its residents. The book is called If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. It came out last year from Feral House Publishing, and Betty Frizzell joins us today to talk about it. Betty, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Betty, you start your book with your sister, Vicki, being charged with the murder of her own husband. How did you get the news? Um, I hadn't heard from her all day, which was very unusual. She usually calls numerous times because she had had a stroke a year prior to this. So she had um, gotten to be more childlike and very clingy and called a lot. So there was something unusual when she didn't call um, at 10 o'clock at night. So I called and her son had told me that she was in jail for murder. So that's quite a way to get that news. Um, it, he says, mom, mom murdered Chris, or mom said she murdered Chris. And this Chris was at the time her husband. Yes. So Vicki and Chris lived in Puxico, uh, Missouri. It, tell us just a bit about life in Puxico. It's a tiny town. It's uh, about 800 people. It has one marshal. It's, uh, it's, uh, it looks like it's almost frozen in time in uh, rural uh, southeast Missouri, which a lot of those little towns litter all over the boot hill. And um, it's just a very small town. Everyone knows everyone, and there's just generations of people that stay there. And, and Vicki had a stroke in 2012, but on top of that, she had a pretty serious opioid addiction. How did that affect her and, and Chris? Well, they had both um, been wrestlers. And I, when I say wrestlers, I'm saying like the WWE-type wrestlers. And uh, both of them had injuries from that, especially Chris. And they had... Um, 
gone to this pain management centers, which were popping up all over rural, um, the, the rural counties in the, uh, Missouri. And um, they were taking these opioids to medicate other things like her mental illness and um, the pain. They, and she kept telling me, these are prescribed pills. This is a doctor that prescribed them. But I knew from my time in law enforcement what a rabbit hole that that can be, what a person can fall into. And, and, and part of what you deal with in this book is also how Vicki and Chris were paying for the op opioids they used. This is a, an entire community. For the most part, people are subsisting on disability checks. Right. There's a large number of people who get Social Security disability in that area. And um, once they get, then they can get on uh, the Medicaid system. And they would um, use that to go to these doctors. And sometimes they were doctor shopping or they were selling some of their pills uh, to get through the, the month before they got their next Social Security check. So this became a really bad situation with Vicky, with Chris, and then Vicky's grown son also ends up moving into this trailer with them. Just a lot of violence in this relationship. Were you aware at the time of all the domestic abuse that was taking place? I was aware of some of it, especially after the stroke. She'd gotten more open with telling me. Um, and because she knows that I'm in law enforcement, I was in a mandated reporter. So I would tell, I, I would have I got a hold of local law enforcement, and I um, and, the, and and I also opened up a case with Missouri Department of Aging for the abuse that she was suffering because I knew before the stroke she thought she could manage it, but then you brought in another person with mental health conditions, uh, which was Kenny, her adult son, and then uh, coupled with not being able to have any type of rehab after the stroke, so. Um, it was just a perfect storm of violence because there was uncontrolled emotions, plus the opioids were making her turn into somebody I didn't really know. She, When I saw the, um, the report that her attorney had after her arrest of how many drugs she had in her system and how many she was actually prescribed, it was a laundry list. I, I couldn't believe it. Hmm. it was, there, how can anybody function in an, especially in a dysfunctional, so dysfunctional home, on all this medication. And, and you tried to get people to intervene. You say you felt you were a mandatory reporter. You wanted to stop the domestic violence that Vicki was dealing with from Chris, her husband, also from her son. In any case, uh, was anybody able to do anything or willing to do anything to intervene in this very toxic situation? Well, you take... Um, the, the marshal at the time in the town that I kept talking to, that I wasn't calling just as um, just a citizen. I was calling as an officer to officer courtesy, like, hey, I'm, you know, I know I've been there. I've dealt with these types of situations. It's a reoccurring thing. And you go over there and neither one of them say that there's anything going on. However, he's elected. And um, Vicki's alleged victim was the youngest of eight. So those are votes so they want to if you want to stay in your job you you do you know who to arrest and who not to that's just a typical thing in small towns because um you you, you know, feel like they elected. they showed favoritism to her husband because he yes. was from a big family where there were a lot of them in that town yes and like her his uh sister was a a well-known social worker the brother-in-law was the principal of the high school 
and Vicky had no voice. She didn't have a name or anything, and I felt like that he was like, oh, well, I, it, this is just a family issue, which we know domestic violence is too big. Even in my own family, I tried to educate my siblings because I'm the youngest of eight. Vicky's the seventh of the eight, eight of us. And a lot of them were like, no, they can handle it. No, they couldn't. And so my husband and I, um, we actually tried to get conservatorship, which has been a big buzzword with the whole thing that's going on with Britney Spears lately. But um, people don't understand how hard it is to get conservatorship of someone, especially when they're married. Mm, that I can see how that would be very complicated legally. Uh, but so you did what you could. You tried to get people to intervene. Unfortunately, you know, this situation still ended up in a tragedy where your sister's husband was shot and killed. Your sister ended up being charged for it. And you became convinced that she didn't do it. And you explore that in great detail in this book. But what was shocking to me is that even if she did do it, that the court and the people involved in this didn't seem to take into account the long history of domestic violence in this relationship. They were not interested in the mitigating factors here. Right, and the mental illness, the uh, the mental health conditions that both of them suffered from, the um, laundry list of drugs that she was on. It, I, if my mom was alive, she said it would have killed a horse as many drugs as she was on. And um, just, you know, taking in effect our family history, you know, Vicki uh, was a person of diminished intellect to begin with. And, um, I, you know, and just the whole history that she had had of the abuse, um, starting as a small child. And um, I always see Vicki as, you know, she was born to be a victim because, you know, mom was her first abuser. Then the school system, which used corporal punishment, was her second victim and I mean, her second abuser. And then as she got older and got in the criminal justice system and, um, you know, she she would it was getting abused there because she had issues that were being dealt with with corrections sentences instead of like, let's go to let's, let's see what the root of this is. Let's get you into therapy and try to find out why you're this person, which we do all the time in the criminal justice system. We don't, there wasn't a mental health court and Missouri has, is lacking in a lot of mental health courts. I'm glad there is some in the bigger cities, but in the rural part, there's nothing. And, and, and your sister, um, it, so, it, it's so clear your sister is failed along the way by every step of the system. Anybody who could have helped her. You got into law enforcement because, you know, you thought this was something where you could help people. Seeing what happened to your sister as this case plays out and as, frankly, her whole life played out, did you lose faith in that system? I did somewhat because I'm exposed to a different type of policing out here and, and where I live at now. You're now living so, in Washington, the state of Washington. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I you know Seattle's much different, and um, but I, I think we have the greatest criminal justice system. I think that voices can be heard, but there's so much room for improvement that we've seen, and um, especially in the state of Missouri, there's when there's uh, evidence that someone didn't do something, you still want to keep them in the crime, and the attorney general of Missouri still fights to keep them in prison. That's there's a problem there, and um, because what I would teach my students when I was a professor is that. The role of the prosecutor is to zealously pursue justice. What is justice doing when you've got a mentally ill woman with an IQ lower than what most people would equate Forrest Gump's as being? And uh, Betty, are, are you still there? I think, unfortunately, we may have just lost Betty's connection. We're going to try to get her back. Um, 
she might uh, she might still be with us. Betty, are you still there? Yes, I'm oh, here. Oh, good. Sorry about that. I don't know. No, we're okay. having some technical difficulties. Um, yeah, so you're saying that, that what you see in Washington gives you faith in the system, but what you saw in rural Missouri, it, it, this it, it feels like this is a system that doesn't work. Well, you got to think of what I, at the time I was teaching in North uh, St. Louis uh, off of Goodfellow. So I was teaching policing and criminal justice. So I was dealing with uh, young African-Americans in my classroom during the day, you know, trying to help them learn this, uh, learn what their rights were and how to get into the system to try to change um, this the system that we have because we need diversity, you know, and, and diversity always brings better ideas because people can learn off of other people's ideas. And then I was dealing with rural Missouri <laughs> at night with my sister's case, so I was in juxtaposed between both of those things that were going on. So your book, we're talking today to Betty Frizzell. She's a former Missouri police chief, currently works as an investigator for the state of Washington. Her book is, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. I think this might have been the saddest part of the book is the part where the title of this book comes from. This is something your sister says to you when you're visiting her in prison. This is the first thing she said, because in our family, we were conditioned not to cry. You know, we're, we're country Missouri girls. We don't cry. We hunt. We fish. We, we're strong. But um, something about seeing her so desperate and so um, so uh, vulnerable mm -hmm. in a system that I know what happens when people go to prison. I know how people can get abused, and I know what, what goes on. I couldn't quit crying. And she kind of told you, hey, you got to toughen up here because this was just the life as she knew it. Yeah. She um, she said, you know, basically she's told me, you know, I, I made my bed, I'm going to lie in it. That's what mom used to tell us all the time. And um, I usually don't get so emotional about talking about her, but I just got off the phone with her yesterday. So, and, and but I'm, yeah, um, it was... Um, it was pretty hard, you know, here I, I've done some pretty tough cases. I've worked in some pretty rough areas in Missouri and just seeing this vulnerable person, you know, when you're a police officer, you, you just think, okay, I did my job, I go home at night, but you've actually changed somebody's life course. And that's what I think police officers need to realize a lot more than what we do, you know, that we can go home to our nice warm bed and, and, and eat our nice food and everything, but when you... Um, when you arrest somebody or you sentence somebody to life plus 25 years, you know, this part, that's, that's her life is going to be prison. She's not eligible for parole till 2048. Now, the irony of this, and, and it seems pretty clear in this book, this is an unjust sentence, again, regardless of whether or not she did it. And you make a, a good mm -hmm. case. She's not even the one who did it. But in some ways, your sister seemed to thrive in prison. In some ways, was that a better environment for her than all the chaos and the violence that she was suffering in Puxico? And that was the saddest part for me is just to realize that she, well, the first time I saw her in prison when she was actually in Chillicothe, um, she was prettier than I had seen her in years. She was happier. There was a glow about her. And that's sad that your outside world was so terrifying that going to prison made you made brought you happiness and is it because she was able to get off drugs or, or also yes. just somebody wasn't beating her the that I think a, a combination of the two I I mean she had to go cold turkey off these opioids which um, you know you can still get drugs in jail well you know don't kid ourselves we know that but 
um, she, for the most part, she couldn't, she wouldn't have, you know, unlimited access to going to these doctors who, as long as you had the money, they were, they were writing the scripts for her. So, Betty, your book is grim in so many ways, and I think it's an important book to read. It's, it's eye-opening in terms of what is happening in rural Missouri. And yet the note of hope in this book is that you made it out. You're the youngest of this very dysfunctional family. You're a survivor. Do you feel some pride in that, that, that you managed to get out of this mess? I, 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 I don't know because I didn't know anything but the mess. You know, I, that's all I knew. If it wasn't for um, teachers and the sense of community that I had that rallied against, you know, around me when I was very young, and said that this is not your your manifest destiny. You can do what you need to do. I think that um, I, I didn't because I didn't know it was so violent until uh, I got out and seen how other people live. You know, church was a refuge for me. School was a refuge for me, and um, just seeing how other people lived because you don't when you're in that situation you don't see it as violent. It's just Tuesday. It's just Wednesday. <laughs> You know, I didn't understand how much of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder I had till I got older. Do you feel like you had to move out of Missouri, even though you had this successful career in Missouri, you had to move to Washington State just to get away from this legacy, get away from this violence? Yes. This, uh, you know, I, I wanted to end the transgenerational trauma, and I, you know, with my son, and um but I just felt like just getting, because I would have stayed in it all the time because that's what I am, I'm an investigator. I stay in trying to figure out something and trying to right wrongs. And um, I had to move you know, to across country. And it also obliterated my 26 year marriage, um, this case did. Um, it just couldn't withstand it. After getting help and getting therapy and getting mentally, taking, using self care, because I never knew what self care was. Um, I, I just didn't, I wasn't the person I was married to. I wasn't that person, and my husband and I both realized that. But, you know, after 26 years of, of get, finally getting healthy and figuring out that I needed, I needed this, this move. You, you needed this move. You made that move. You got out. It, it sounds like you're doing great today. You were able to write this book. Um, I really want to encourage people. This is, this is a close-up look at what it's like to grow up in a very dysfunctional family in rural Missouri, make it out, um, and then still have to deal with family members left behind, doing what you can for those family members, even while you're trying to preserve yourself. I feel like this is a book many people can relate to. Betty Frizzell, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Betty's book is If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. You can find your copy from Amazon, or if you choose to avoid Amazon, uh, Feral House Publishing. We have a link on our website. They are the publisher of this book, stlonair.show. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And 
leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.